right, welcome back to our autumn season. Uh, our autumn season, this series that we're going through, Moses, Moses and the Exodus of Egypt. Today, we're going to be talking about the rise and fall of Prince Moses. Uh, the rise and fall of Moses, maybe he'd be referred to by the Hebrews as Moshe or Mio by the Egyptians or Sebekatep Mio. We're going to look today at, through the historical records and see the rise of Prince Moses, and then the biblical record about the, the fall of him. But before I do that, I want to remind us of two passages in the New Testament that, that help us understand not just what was going on in the story, but what was going on inside of Moses. What is he thinking? What is he processing as he is going through these events? If we don't get this insight, we, can just, we might just make up anything. Well, Moses was almost certainly feeling like this or thinking like this. But actually, the New Testament gives us two passages of really important insight that we want to carry with us as we look at our, our section of Scripture today and, and really over the next couple weeks. The first passage that we want to remember is in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, this is what it says about Moses starting in verse 23. It says, By faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they didn't fear the king's edict. You're going to see glimpses of a multi-generational faith right here in, in this passage. They, his parents, didn't fear the king's edict. By faith, verse 24, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith, he, Moses, left Egypt behind not being afraid of the king's anger. Okay, you've got that multi, his parents didn't have, weren't afraid of the king's edict. Now he is not afraid of the king's anger. This paragraph that we're now in seems to be talking about this second era, or maybe when he's 80 years old, the, the second time he leaves um, Egypt. I'm just giving the whole story away. But yeah, the second time he leaves Egypt, he's definitely afraid the first time. But not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. By faith, he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. Now, that, that passage, I want to make sure we, we tuck away because in our minds, however we consider this story is specifically connected to the fall of Prince Moses and his, his choices that he makes here, we got to make sure that we have in our minds that Moses is acting in faith. He has a faith perspective when it comes to uh, believing that God is involved in this moment and because he believes in God's hand in this moment, he's making certain decisions. He doesn't always make the right decisions, but... Um, he, he seems to be motivated by faith in some way. So we're going to tuck that away. The other passage we want to make sure we tuck away is in Acts chapter 7. And it's in Stephen's speech. And he gives us some more insight about Moses. And he says this in Acts 7.20. He says, at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. Aren't we all? Uh, he, he was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put outside... Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. Verse 22. So, 
Moses was educated. This is giving us some insight, a little bit more than what we see in Exodus. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. I really want to make sure we grab onto that. Uh, we're going to keep reading, but if we just look at Exodus chapter 3, Moses is like, I don't even know how to talk. You know, and he kind of gives this whole whining thing to God in chapters 3 and 4. But no, the, we, the, the truth of the matter is Moses was powerful in his speech and actions, at least in the 40-somethings era. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed, okay, this is also giving us insight into Moses. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. Like he, he just, he assumed, Moses understood that God had raised him up to give deliverance to his people. Moses had that understanding of it. He thought it was so obvious that every one of these people should understand. He is shocked that not everybody understands that God had raised him up to give deliverance through him. Like he thought this was so obvious. So uh, at age 40, that was his mindset. He, uh, he, he knew that and he was surprised that not everybody else did as well. Okay, so we're going to keep that in our minds as we're looking at the story of the rise of Prince Moses from what we know in the Bible and in history before we talk about his fall. Now what we know, and, and like what we saw in the Bible, he was, ex he was well educated, well educated by the Egyptians, and he was powerful in speech and action. Speech and action. He wasn't just like a prince like um, like. Like if Jasmine was a princess, you know, hiding, hiding away or something like that. This guy was out there. He was, he was powerful in speech and action. Okay, so remember the, I call it Stella, but it's actually pronounced Steely, but we're not, uh, who cares. Um, I showed you last week from the Wadi Hamamat, which talked about um, Sebekatep Mio, the, the prince. Prince Sebekatep Mio. And how he is the firstborn, and he's this, the, the, the next in line, the honored prince of Canaferi, which is Moses' stepdad. And we saw that, a picture of that last week. There is definitely an extreme honor to Moses, at the, or Sebekatep Mio, which, which seems very, very much like to be Moses here. And that, that he, there is a, a supreme honor given him over any of the other um, of, of Canaferi's foreknown kids. So when the Bible says that he's mighty in action, there's a lot of, there's some history behind this. The following history that I'm about to tell you is from Artapanis, right? Remember our good friend Artapanis, um, our good friend, yeah, he, so I told you about him last week. He is a big deal. Everybody quotes Artapanis' work, and that's why a lot of his work remains. He wrote this book called Concerning the Jews around 300 BC. He has access to all the information in the great library of, of Alexandria, and he records the whole story, and, and his work is considered like the legit work that everybody, who, of, who's anybody, quotes from in, in the ancient times. So Artapanis, he does this, this, this recording of the works, and according to what we have from Artapanis, it's when Moses when it was in his mid-twenties, about 25 or so, that a huge invasion takes place from the south and starts taking over Egypt. Um, the Cushites, or the Ethiopians, the, the people from Cush, Cushites, that's, that would be modern-day Ethiopia, S Sudan uh, uh, today. From time to time, during the, 
era of the Bible, the, the Cushites were a mighty superpower. They, they would come to, they'd become pretty big deals. In fact, in 2 Chronicles, the Cushites bring this huge army to, to the land of Israel. And, and King Asa at the time, this is in chapter 14 of 2 Chronicles, he's freaking out. And it's only by an act and miracle of God that they survive this, this Cushite invasion. So sometimes the, the Cushites or the Ethiopians, they, they're hugely powerful. And remember, for the last couple of weeks, I've been painting a picture of what Egypt has been like in these years leading up to Moses. Not at its strongest. A lot of short-lived pharaohs. And then finally we get to this strong guy, uh, Canaphere, who's going to be pharaoh for a long time. But remember, it's not until, he's, until Moses is 10 years old that he actually is able to marry the princess and start reuniting all of Egypt. Egypt had been divided up to this point. It's definitely not at a strong point. Whereas the Cushites are, and so uh, when Moses is about 25 years old, so after, uh, after, yeah, 15 years of Moses having and his living in his stepdad's home, um, there there is this huge invasion, and we know a little bit about this from history. Here's a picture here of the ruins in Luxor. Um, it's it's the complex called uh, Karnak. Now um, this is an amazing complex. This is just a little bit of it. If you Google it and you zoom back, you see this is a massive complex. Hieroglyphs, history, story, everywhere, all over this place. Um, I, was just, I just referenced it this morning, but I thought I would, I'd show you a little bit of a picture of it. The history is, is scrolled all over these pillars. Um, we see here at, at this place that, that there was an invasion that takes place uh, while Kenneferi was ruling Egypt from, from the south, and they actually take over this actual complex as, as part of their invasion. Josephus writes about this, and he writes that this invasion was, was shockingly successful from the south. And, and he, he, writes, uh, he writes this, here's a quote from Josephus. He says, they, the Ethiopians or the Cushites, same people, they proceeded as far as Memphis and the sea itself, while not one of the cities was able to oppose them. Again, the, they just walked through this place. Um, he, Moses, came upon the Ethiopians before they expected him. And joining battle with them, he beat them and deprived them of, their hopes they, uh, of the hopes they had of success against the e Egyptians. Um, Josephus gets really flowery in some of his descriptions here. He beat them, deprived them of their hopes they had of success against the Egyptians. And he went on in overthrowing their cities, which is true. He pushed them back and indeed made a great slaughter of these Ethiopians. He not only drove them out of Egypt, Mo Moses, general, the prince of Egypt here, he drove them out of Egypt and he pushed them back into their land. He started taking their cities. In fact, according to Artapanis, he had pushed them all the way back to their capital city, which is, happens to be right now in modern day Sudan. And, and he laid siege to their capital city. Artapanis tells us that this, this, this war took place, it was 10 years. It was a 10 year war. And eventually the, the, the war ended and peace was made at the marriage of the princess of Cush to Moses, prince of Egypt. The, the Cushite princess marrying, uh, marrying Moses, and that's what put an end finally to the war. Um, and uh, uh, Artapanis writes about this. Josephus writes about this. He actually names her in her Greek, her Greek name, which would have been different than her, uh, what she was called. He names her Tharbis. Uh, Tharbis. 
and talks about how after they were married, after Mar Moses had married to this Cushite, that, um, that they were there in that city for a bit, but then Moses returns home and she stays there, but they're married. And, you know, so that, that means that peace is secure, and that's, and that's how the war was ended. You know, uh, maybe that seems a little bit weird. You're like, wait, I, I haven't heard this story before. Um, the Bible does have a strange verse that might be talking about this. Uh, in, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, we read this. Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman he married. For he had married a Cushite woman. Now, you don't hear anything else about this ever in all, all the Bible. You don't have, I don't know if you've ever read that and be like, what? I, what uh, okay. Uh, you, you don't really know what's going on. And it seems like you, you've got two options here. You, you have an option as, okay, that they're upset about this historical Cushite person that he'd married and, and was uh, still married to. And, and, that, and so they're kind of complaining historically. Or maybe one of the slaves that had come out of Egypt with them was a, I don't know, a hot little Cushite. And, and, he, and I don't know, he, he married her uh, later on. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But this, this verse could be referring to what history talks about this this princess that he had been he had been married to so random verse I don't know if you've ever thought about it could be um, could be all right so uh, there anyways Moses wins and he's he's married to this this woman he is about thirty five years old now at this point five years away from running away and at this point according to Artapanus he is at Moses is at the height of his military influence. He is he is a hero of the nation. He saved the nation from this from this huge invasion from the south. He he is a remarkable administrator at this time. He is a remarkable military tactician, and he's just considered the hero and savior of Egypt. The Hebrews are going crazy. They're like the next in line to the throne is the hero and savior of Egypt, and and they're they're, they're excited. But, at this point, according to Artapanis, his stepdad becomes intensely jealous of the fame and the notoriety. Think of Saul and David, right? You know, Saul has slain his thousands, David's his tens of thousands, and that refrain just galled Saul. In the same way, Moses is getting all this praise, and apparently Kenneth Ferry is just going insane with, with the jealousy of, of this. And his heart turns against I wanted to say David, that's the song David's word. His, his heart turns against Moses. And he starts looking actively for ways to get rid of Moses and get, and get him gone. And to let his own uh, genetic firstborn son take over. And it seems like the murdering of the Egyptian is exactly what Canaphary was looking for. Something like that in order to, an excuse to get rid of the hero of the nation, uh, Moses. This guy who in Acts chapter 7 is described as powerful in speech and action. A, a great warrior, a great leader uh, in the nation. Okay, so with all that in mind, uh, let's pick up where we left off last week in, in the book of Exodus. And we're going to see, that's the rise of Prince Moses, and now we're going to look at what the Bible says connected to his fall. Starting in verse 11. Years later, after Moses had grown up, like seriously, <laughs> 
seriously grown up. He is now uh, this amazing, victorious uh, Egyptian prince, warrior, hero guy. He went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. Now, he has seen this before. This is, again, like I re referenced Princess Jasmine, it's not like he's been hiding in the palace all his life and, and, and he's never seen what's going on. No, 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 he's, he's been all around Egypt. He is, he's a big deal. This is not like the first time he sees this and is all shocked and surprised. But when he's out there, he saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people, looking around and seeing no one. This is not impulsive. He is he's calculated. He's looking around. Okay, is this safe? Is this clear? Am I going to get in trouble? I know that this is not an okay, to, I know murdering people is not okay to do. I was looking around, nobody's here. It looks entirely safe. Looking around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two, Hebrew, two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong. <laughs> he could tell which one was wrong, in the wrong, right? The one in the wrong. Why? Are you attacking your neighbor? Not only is he in the wrong, he's also a punk. Uh, who made you a commander and judge over us? Who made you, the guy in the wrong, who made you a commander and judge over us? Now Stephen in the New Testament uses this in, in his speech. And he says, you guys never could tell when God was at work in your life. You could never tell when the Holy Spirit was at work that God had sent Moses to be your rescuer and your deliverer and you turned and looked him in the face and said, who appointed you? It was God. Can't you ever see when God is at work in your life? I think it's somewhere in the last couple of weeks I've been talking about the, 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 how blind we can be to when God is at work in our lives. It is a dangerous place to be. It's not just a, that's not just a, 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 a less convenient place to be or, or a... Or, uh, you know, it's like, oh, it'd be nice to be able to see when God's at work. It actually can be a dangerous place to be, and God's people kept missing it. Moses was there to be the commander, to be the, the, uh, the one who was there to rescue them and judge over them. And yet, they, they couldn't see it, and they mocked him for it. Anyways, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to be, uh, be aware of when God's at work in your life. I hope you can keep, your, keep getting your eyes more and more open to how he's at work in your life. Well, who made you commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? Yeah, jerk. Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. Okay, he needed that to be a secret. This was not okay. Well, certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to, to water their father's flock. Then some shepherd punks arrived. Uh, that's, that's loose with the translation. I'll back up. Then some, shepherd, then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. Huh. But Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. The Moses, this, this warrior general prince of Egypt, former prince of Egypt, came and he took on all the shepherds single-handedly and drove them away. How awesome is that? that that's exciting. Training well spent. Seven brides for, no. Uh, 
When they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us. Now, okay, Moses, he looks like an Egyptian. He is, his hairstyle is an Egyptian. He, he is, he is, he's Egyptian. They're not going to think, I mean, technically he's not Egyptian, obviously. But he looks an Egyptian, he talks like an Egyptian, he walks like an Egyptian. Anyway, so an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? He asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. Okay. I like this. Moses Moses finds a good home in exile. And again, like I hinted at last week, you don't see any sense of what God is doing in chapter 2. You don't, you don't get any clarity. Like God moved move, move Moses and he brought him to here and he led this and God did You don't get any of that. All you see is what happened. But what I see God's goodness in this moment. His hidden hand. Even in Moses' major sin and failing as he murders this Egyptian and has to run for his life, I see God's hidden hand guiding Moses. I see God's goodness to him even in his exile bringing him to a home where he can find rest and shelter and belong after, after leaving exile. Often we assume that when we mess up, God's going to zap us. That he's just going to... He's just, he's just going to blast us, especially if we mess up in a major way. Like, we murdered someone and had to run from the country for our lives. You know, that, that kind of big epic deal. And, and, and sure, there might be discipline. And sure, there might be conf, uh, uh, like consequences, consequences and discipline. But, but there's also, when it comes to God, a love behind the discipline. There's a brilliance behind the discipline and a perfect understanding behind the discipline. And I want to say something, and I don't have the right wordings anywhere. I don't, I don't have this in my notes other than please say something about this. <laughs> it's basically what it says in my notes. And so I, I have this thought here when it comes to God as father and disciplinarian. Now, when we think of God as father and when we think of fathers as disciplinarians, uh, we can be afraid when it comes to, like, how is God going to respond when we, when we sin and when we blow up, especially in a major way like this. And we can think of him, we can make the error of thinking of him like a human father. Um, it, let's, let's pretend one of my kids ever did something wrong. And, and okay, this uh, hard stretch, but let's just pretend. I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Uh, otherwise, you know, that would be more fun. But let's just say, let's just imagine that they did something wrong. And, and, and let's say I find out about it, okay. And, and I find out about it, and it's awful. Let's just say it's awful. And I am upset. I mean, I, I don't think I ever get upset, but let's just say. And, and, and I'm upset at what happens here, and, and, and maybe as a father, as a human father, in my surprise to discover how awful this thing is that my, my kid just did, I am angry, and maybe I don't respond at my best. Okay? I'm, I'm surprised. Okay, when, when it comes to God, He's not surprised. And that changes everything when it comes to the discipline of God. 
He, he knew exactly what was going to happen, that Moses was going to murder this guy. He knew before the foundation of the world. He knew exactly the failures and the sins that you may have done before the foundation of the world. There, when there's, there's no surprise when it comes to God and our sin and our, and our mistakes. There's maybe sads, maybe there's disappointments, maybe that, that's not the ideal. Uh, if you would have just trusted me, this would have been so much better. But I knew this was going to happen. And when you take the surprise out of it, everything changes when it comes to the discipline of God and how you can perceive it. So if there's no surprise, then you can also understand that there's brilliance behind it. Because God has known what was going to happen, and he's had a lot of time, like before the foundation of the world, to, to think about exactly what the best response is. If I discipline my kid, in theory, you know, in that first moment, maybe I would have done it differently two days later, right? Sometimes it's like, go to your room, and I'm going to have to get some counsel from Kelly on exactly how to deal with this here, because I... And, and I don't even know how to process this. God has had a lot of time to process this. Not only has God had a lot of time to process the sin and the failure and, and, and the rebellion and the mistakes or whatever, he also knows exactly how whatever he does and whatever his discipline is, how it's going to play out in that person's life for good. He can see the whole trajectory so when the Bible talks about God disciplining those he loves, there, there is definitely a love and intentionality, a non-reaction. There's no surprise. There is a lot of forethought given to it and a lot of understanding of exactly the implications of the, of the, of the discipline as things are out, outflowing. There is a goodness there, something that we can be terrified of because we tend to think that this is going to catch God off. Um, think about Jesus. Uh, and when Jesus tells Peter... You're going to betray me tonight. Peter's like, no way. It surprises Peter, and he's gutted that he betrayed Jesus. Jesus knew it was going to happen. It didn't surprise him. He saw it coming. And that's, that's also how it is. It, it is with God. Okay, so I, I hope that, that that helps a little bit as you process the discipline of God and, and, and even the disappointment of God when we sin, and, and even when we mess up in major ways. Here in this story, you see God is a loving father who with compassion guides fallen Prince Moses, murderer Prince Moses, Moses who didn't uh, do this the right way to a place where he can live in peace, to a family which he can call his own. I see the love and the goodness of God even in this discipline season. Now, talking about the fall of Moses here, the longer you live, the longer you live, the more you're going to have to deal with your own moments and seasons where, uh, where there's falling, where there's failing, and when it comes to sin, maybe you, you, you're going to have more experiences with this potentially, um, and, and maybe messing up when it comes to following God's plan for your life. Sometimes we sin, and it's humbling, or it's embarrassing, or, or it's upsetting what we've done, but there's sometimes that we sin, and it's brutal. The, the consequences of the sin uh, and the mistake or the not trusting God are life-altering. They, they are direction-shifting, like Moses murdering this guy, going from prince of Egypt to exile instantly. Life-altering sin moments, impacting him for decades. Now here's my brief take when it comes to Moses and what's going on here. Uh, Moses, I believe Moses really screwed up and this mistake alters his life for decades. That, and I believe that his mistake here, his murdering of the Egyptian, sets back, I believe, the exodus of Egypt three decades, 30 years. Now, now maybe I'm wrong in that thought and it's, it's easy to be wrong in some of these thoughts because God is such a master at 
at how he redeems things, about how he gets his plans back on track. Sometimes it's, it's hard to, make, to see if this, if this is actually what was intended or what the plan all along. I mean, God knew it was going to happen all along. But my take on this when it comes to Moses is, at 40 years old, Moses knew what God called him to do. In fact, he thought it was so obvious, he thought everybody ought to know. Everybody should know what he's called to do, Acts chapter 7. And he is making steps at this moment of his life in faith, moving forward in faith, um, that, that his role is to be the deliverer, and he is going to act on that. But I also think that maybe Moses got it right-ish when it came to God's timings, that God was genuinely stirring his heart towards becoming the deliverer uh, of God's people. And why do I think it was the right time? And again, I could be wrong on this. There, there could be other explanations. But not only was Moses' heart clearly stirred in understanding that he is to be the deliverer of, of God's people here, God in Genesis chapter 15 told Abraham that God's people were going to be in Egypt for 400 years. For 400 years. In after Moses is 40 years in exile, he comes back, he leads the people out, gave it away, sorry, but that's where we're going. Um, after that, in, in, Exod in, in Exodus chapter 12, we see it says that when the people finally left Egypt, they left 430 years to the day later. 430 years to the day later. Now, I I've just wondered, as I, I look at this math, to me it seems like that's 30 years after uh, God had said it was going to be. And so that's why I'm like, maybe Moses was being stirred and set up and getting ready to be the one to deliver God's people out of Egypt when he is 40, moving towards 50. Maybe it was just going to be waiting until he becomes the next Pharaoh or, or something along those lines. And God had him on a certain trajectory, but he sinned. And he messed up. And that messing up caused, in my, what it seems to me, a bit of a delay. Again, because God's a masterful redeemer, I might not be exactly right on that. But, but still, what I do know, what I do know is that we as God's people can know exactly what God wants us to do. We can be right about that. We can have faith. We can have faith and willingness to do what God has called us to do. We can even have the timings of God right in, in our lives. But how we do what God wants us to do has to be not just what God wants, but how God wants it done. We have to do God's work God's ways. Godly. We have to do God's work. Sin is never required to see God's ideal accomplished on this planet. God's ideal for your life does not, the, no sin is required for that. No sin is required for that at all. Think of Jesus and his temptation. Jesus is being tempted by the devil. The devil says, I give you all the kingdoms of the world. And that is Jesus' future. That is destiny. That is a promise from God. And he has a choice. He could sin now and get it. Or he can wait and get it. He can do it God's way and, and get it eventually. And it seems like Moses shortcuts here and he does, he moves towards what God has promised him as the deliverer or raised him up for as the deliverer of this people. But he does not do it God's way. He murders somebody. He shortcuts and he kind of blows up and, and seems to delay this going on. So anyways, Moses seems to mess up and he doesn't do this process God's way and as a result instead of leading millions out of Egypt he ran alone he ran alone what do we do when we find ourselves at one of those moments where we've just messed up where we've completely messed up and and where we failed where we've sinned 
uh, where, where we've just maybe made a, such a terrible mistake and the consequences are just huge. What do we do? What do we do? How do we get up from falling down in such brutal ways? First of all this, humble honesty between you and God. Humble honesty between you and God. It surprises me how not honest people are when it comes to talking to God about their major sin and failings. How they still want to shade it relatively not as bad as you know it is. Okay, and, and, and I don't try and spin it positive. If you want to have a good connection with God, God likes truth, and He likes to know that you know what He knows about what you did. He wants to know that you know. And so just own it. Own it all. Admit it all. Dig deep. Make sure that you communicate to God that you understand how appalling it is. And, and okay, God, I did this, but it's even worse than that. I was, I was motivated by this secret awful thing but it's even worse than that i i was i was more and then i was really hoping that this would happen but it was even worse than that and then i was i was not only just hoping but but actually i secretly was you know and and just dive deep and make sure you own it and god's like finally you're telling me the truth this is this is fantastic don't hold back he knows what's going on he knows all that but we think yeah we're just gonna kind of just make it nicer um he is not fooled humble honesty Long ways with God, between you and God, number one. Number two, identify and reject the accusations and lies of the enemy. When you sin and when you fail, it's, um, I'm thinking Ephesians 6. The, uh, the breastplate of righteousness, which is on when you are living righteous and godly life, that is removed when you're sinning and when you're, when you're doing something in rebellion to God. And you're exposed then to, to being attacked viciously by the enemy who can just start shooting arrows at you. And, and if that's the case and you, and you fail, you've got to make sure you hold on to that shield of faith extra strongly. And you keep that belt of truth firmly in place as you're, as you're getting shot at. The enemy is going to try and convince you that your sin is so shameful and appalling that God is going to need some time before he's ever going to want to talk to you right now. He is so surprised. He's so taken off. Now, you know that's not true now. But, like, he's so taken aback by what you've done. And he can't, he's so appalled that, you know, you just need to go to your room in shame. And he's going to go to his glory palace. And, 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 and just in a little bit, you guys, can, you know, after a few days or months or years, then maybe you can get back together. And, and he's willing to, you know, kind of consider you again. But the enemy wants you to believe that you've been sidelined, that you're going to be sidelined, and that God is just thrown by this. And, and he's going to want to lie to you. The enemy's going to lie to you. And he's like, you know, you're a failure now forever. This is, this is going to hang over you. There's no hope for you in your future. There's no hope. You've messed up. Why even try? You should just give up now. This whole following God thing is a joke. You're no good at it. Why why would you do that? Why would you even try anymore? You, you've, you've blown it too much. You might as well just walk away from God. And he's just going to bombard you with those kind of lies. And in order to resist that, you've got to keep the faith in place, the shield of faith in place, and you've got to keep truth in place, which is number three. Return to the truth. Connected to that last one, when you fail, there can be some trauma in your soul and your heart because you, you've messed up. And you can be filled with self-doubt. Maybe you feel like quitting, but the truth is, you're failing, as I said before, did not catch God off guard. And he's not surprised. And, and he always knew that this was going to be a part of your journey. You are way more surprised by what you did than God is. Like Peter. You're way more surprised by what you did than God is. He, he always knew. And he's been grieved about the consequences of this for a long time. You know, it, it was not his maybe ideal for your life. Um, but you know what? He still loves you. 
He called you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. He chose you before you were born. He, he revealed himself to you. He, he let you know the gospel. He let you respond. He, he let you know that, that there's salvation in Jesus and forgiveness of sins. And he gave you all that knowing what road you would walk in your life. He, he knew what path your life would turn. He knew all the mistakes that you would make. And he knew all of that, and yet he still calls you by name. What grace, what love, what a, what a great God we have. Return to truth, number four. Number four, accept the loving discipline of God for the good that it is. For the good that it is. If God thinks that some of that discipline is necessary for us, he's got the whole thing figured out. He's not reacting. He has got the whole thing figured out. He knows what he's trying to accomplish in your life and what he wants you to be taught and what he wants you to learn. He sees the future. He's, he's thought about it for eternity. He knows what he's doing. So think of the discipline of God for the good that it is that he has got brilliant guidance and, and he's got the perfect thing going on here to make you and to shape you and to change you and to, to mold you into the man that he wants you to be or the woman that he wants you to be. Sometimes if I feel like I'm being disciplined for a while, I know, I just gave it away. Sometimes I mess up. Uh, sometimes if I feel like I'm being disciplined for a while, I might pray something like this. God, okay, I feel like you're disciplining me here. Um, uh, uh, here's what I've been learning in this discipline time. Because I want to see if I can just pass the test and move on. Okay, I, I, I believe that you wanted me to learn this. And this. And this. Oh, and I see this. And I start listing off to God all the lessons that I've been learning in this good discipline of His. And then I ask, I don't think it's cheeky, I just, I, it's honest. You know, can I be done with this discipline? Is that alright? Can we, can we move on from this discipline? God, you know best. This is what I'm learning. Do I get a passing grade? Can we move on? Next thing. Yeah, I think it's okay to ask that of God uh, when it comes. Now, I wasn't an A student, so my expectations of myself are really low. Uh, what is a passing grade when it comes to getting out of this? Um, D for diploma. Okay. Four, I am off. Five, let's keep going. Accept the natural consequences and seek to make things right if appropriate. Now, when we, when, we walk in, when we don't walk in God's ways and we sin, there's failure, there's broken relationships off, often. And, and if we can, it'd be nice to restore those. Sometimes, though, like with Moses, he's just got to run. And, and, he, and, he's, and he's really made a, a break here. And uh, ideally, we can get that uh, relationship restored if appropriate. But sometimes our sin is so bad, and you, you know that um, we can try, but sometimes it's just not going to work. Number six. Seek God's direction and plans from here. Again, obviously Moses should not have killed the Egyptian. Obviously he shouldn't have done that. And maybe you've got things in your life that you're like, okay, obviously I shouldn't have done that. That mistake, I regret that. If I could have gone back and I could do that again, I, I'm sure that you have things in your life that you're like, yeah, I should not have done that. The consequences sometimes are huge. And with Moses, it seems like the consequences delayed things or, or changed things. But God was still with Moses in his exile. And I think one of the things that we, we got to re realize, someday we wake up and we, we, we were here and then we sin and we fail and we crash and we end up here. And, and sometimes when we go from here to here and we find ourselves in a low place, we think that there's no more steps forward, that we have crashed, that we have fallen. And God's plan and our trajectory was here, and he had a good plan for us here, but now he's got no plans for us here. But the thing is, God always knew this was going to happen. He knew what this step could have been, and he knows what this step is going to be. 
You, you, you're never out with another step when it comes to following God. And when you find yourself crashing, when you find yourself low, you, you can still pray the same prayer. God, what is next? That's the same prayer as here. What do you have for me now? It's the same prayer from here. Where is me now? You never leave. You never find yourself in a place where God has no next for you. No forward for you. God, what are your, my, what are your plans for me from here? If you've messed up and, and maybe it's been messing up your life for a long time, I encourage you to get back right with God, get back right with people, and, and to believe in God's grace, his goodness, his perspective, his love, his delight, and his future for you. His future for you. Even if you find yourself at this place and it feels like you're starting all over again, he has a next step. He has a future for you. Even Moses, even Moses, murderer, 40 years in exile, he wasn't kept from being able to do what God had made him and designed him, created him, and trained him to do. Lead the people out of Egypt. I'm going to say this, this word, this, this phrase, which I find encouraging, and I hope all of you can grasp the joy of this, this phrase. I'm going to say it in, with smart words and then in common vernacular. Octogenarians can change the world. That's 80-year-olds. 80-somethings. 80-somethings can change the world. Octogenarians can change the world. I love that truth. Octogenarians can change the world. In fact, if you're on the stream, go ahead and truth type that. Truth type that. How do you spell octogenarians? can't hear it. No. no, I can hear it. Uh, that's how you can learn how to spell. Uh, that's, uh, Wade taught me that. I think you taught me that, didn't you? Uh, yeah, so how to spell. Octogenarians can change the world. Or 80-year-olds can change the world. Guys, sometimes we think that there's, that there's times that we're, we're, we're just talking. My mentor is almost 80 years old. He turns 80 years old in a few months. He is having a huge impact on my life. He's actually having an impact on you, and you don't even know it. He's having a huge impact on, on the whole church. And you don't even know it. 80-year-olds can change the world. And I love that about Moses' story. No matter how much he messed up, you can find, think of it, Moses. He had, for 40 years, he's in exile. He's a broken person. He's away from what he, what he thought his life was going to be about. And then God meets him and gets him back on track around 80 years old. Again, we're way ahead. This is next week. We don't have to worry about this right now. This is all free. This is just for fun. Um, but, but sometimes we think, I've been off track for so long. Where is my hope? Where is my future? There is always hope in a future. Whether you're 14, whether you're 40, whether you're 80. As long as you're alive, there's hope for you and your future. Way ahead. Challenges. Challenge. Challenge for you this week. If you've sinned and failed, ask the Holy Spirit to help you identify the lies that the enemy is trying to get you to believe. Identify the lies that the enemy is wanting you to believe. Reject those lies and believe what is true. How do you do this? Holy Spirit, what are the lies the enemy is trying to get me to believe right now? What are the lies? Help me to see the lies. And then, Holy Spirit, what is true? What is true? How does God actually think about me? What is tr true about me and, and my future? God, uh, Father, I thank you for your goodness, for your love, for your brilliance, for your guidance, for, for your patience. You're gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love and faithfulness. You're quick to forgive. Thank you for that. And you don't leave the guilty unpunished. And I, I trust you in all of these things. God, I ask that you would help us to, uh, to be able to identify where the lies are at work in our hearts. Corrupting the good news about Jesus. Corrupting our thoughts about you and your love and your goodness. And instead, fill our hearts with truth. What is true about us 
and your love and your grace and your goodness towards us. Reveal that to us in Jesus' name. Amen.